Good morning and welcome to Convocation. The theme for this morning, or at least the, the topic for this morning, is stories from my vocational journey. And uh, my name is Melinda Berry, and I asked Becky Horst if it would be okay if I introduced my dad, this morning's Convocation speaker, and she said, sure. So I also brought along a few family photos um, to help with this introduction. My dad's been teaching here at Goshen College since uh, 1969. And he got his PhD from Notre Dame in political science in 1976. So the photos you see here, uh, one in his graduation garb, and then the other one where he's, uh, that's, that's me that he's holding. It was a photo taken at, at a party that my parents held afterwards. And then he and my mother, Beth Berry, are the parents of three Goshen College graduates. We're seated down there in the far corner with our cherubic smiling faces. My dad is also tends to be viewed as a fairly stern or serious kind of guy, but um, it's fun to flip through the family photos and see his smiling face. In 1979, uh, my parents took us to Costa Rica where they led SST for the year. And um, so we went from hanging out in Goshen to climbing volcanoes in Central America. It was pretty cool. In 1984, on, while he took a sabbatical from Goshen, my dad earned his uh, doctorate, or his, his JD degree, his law degree, from IU Bloomington. So he came back here and continued to teach at Goshen College, but also set up a modest law practice that he um, continues at to this day. My dad has interesting stories to tell, so you'll have to ask him sometime about what it was like to grow up as a migrant laborer in Florida and Ohio, and then to end up joining this crazy little church that the denomination we know today is Mennonite Church USA. He went to EMU, to where he earned his undergraduate degree, and you can see here one of his college photos where he's wearing a plain coat. So, my dad's story is one of going from the migrant muck fields to being a plain coat Mennonite to earning a PhD and spending his life teaching at Goshen College. So I'm very happy to introduce to you my dad. It's a hard act to follow. I guess what I should do is I have a prepared speech, and I'll try to stick to that, but what I should do is deviate a bit by simply telling you about my world of work. Um, I began working when I was about five years old. Uh, my grandmother, Cor paternal grandmother, Cora Burke, uh, formerly Cora Berry, uh, took us into the cotton fields in Georgia, and I learned to pick cotton before I went to school. Um, when I was eight, um, 1952, I went with my parents, as Melinda said, to um, what we called up the road from Sarasota, Florida, to uh, Hartville, Ohio, at Stark County, Ohio. Some of you may know. And we worked uh, during the summer, my sister and I, and my older sister, Cora. And 
then we, when school started, we would go to school. Normally the season would begin around sometime in late April, early May, and it would end in mid to late October, depending upon the, the weather. And we would go back to Florida, and uh, we uh, would enroll in school at the colored school, or the black school, it's called Booker School, Booker Elementary. Uh, very early, I became aware of the factor of class, as well as color, when one of my uh, grade teachers, or one of the grade teachers teaching where I went to school, we were all black people, Miss Williams, I always remember her, uh, she uh, wanted to know what, she was familiar with our family, she wanted to know what uh, was going on, and when we tried to answer her, and she, she particularly wanted to know whether we had any more children, and when I advised her that we had, my mother and father had other children, recently, she reminded, she asked me rhetorically, is that all your mother and father are going to do? Run up and down the road and have babies. I, that always stuck with me. But like most uh, uh, things, one doesn't dwell on them every day. But I suspect that, that gave me an incentive to do the kinds of things that I later did. Similarly, when I was young, I became aware of the work of lawyers. And particularly when my mother and father got behind in the payments on the house that they had bought or tried to buy, and we were faced, faced with foreclosure. And I saw my mother crying, and I always thought, the impression I had was that lawyer was, lawyers were very powerful people. Little did I know uh, the real facts of life. And the, the better statement is that some lawyers are very powerful people. Having said that, I would like to talk to you about both of my professions. A student of politics, I am, and I'm also a lawyer. And I'd like to talk to you specifically about one area uh, in which my two trades sort of coincide, uh, and that is working with undocumented workers or illegal immigrants in the United States and thinking about the unique set of problems that they face. In doing so, I'd like to just speak primarily about Mexican uh, immigrants because they're the ones that I work with most. When I began working as a lawyer a little over 22 years ago, it just so happened that Elkhart County, like so many other jurisdictions uh, throughout the country, was uh, experiencing population increases from people coming here from Central America and Mexico. Coming across the border to seek their fortunes, as Dixon's characters would say, and, but without government permission to do so. Many as they came, especially the adult young men, found themselves rather in a sea of troubles as they began to experience the criminal law and its sanctions because they were so woefully unprepared for the culture in which they came. Unlike many who go abroad to, to work and to live, they didn't have the kind of orientation that they needed to come here. They didn't have the kind of people who would instruct them about 
the do's and the don'ts, the things to watch out for, the mores and customs of a foreign land. And so some of them, by default, did wind up in jail and experience what we lawyers, defense lawyers like to call some serious jail time. Quite a few of these people honored me by seeking my legal assistance because unlike most members of the local bar at the time, I had a bit of an acquaintance with Spanish and they preferred to have me struggle with their native language than for them to struggle with mine. Their histories were not totally unlike my own since being a migrant farm worker, even though native born, is often is somewhat akin to being an illegal immigrant. Both live on the margins of society. Neither is politically significant. And the worlds of both are filled with economic insecurities and vulnerabilities that accompany ignorance. Perhaps it was my appreciation of their predicament that caused me to want to do what little I could do to help. Whatever the reasons, the results was that the overwhelming majority of my clients quickly became Hispanic, and so it remains today. In the, in the earlier days, the facts of my clients' illegal status had little direct impact upon the resolution of their cases, or didn't have very many immediate negative consequences, unless, of course, they had extended jail, jail times, in which cases I had to inform them that they might be deported. Otherwise, uh, it was a matter of simply informing them the consequence of the legal consequences of their having come in, con come in contact with the, uh, the criminal law and having been adjudicated a criminal in the United States. Now that was before September 11, 2001. Six years later, the situation is very different in many ways. But in others, it's, it hasn't changed very much. With respect to the changes, it's clear now that the law enforcement of the, uh, the, the enforcement of the country's laws against illegal immigrants has substantially increased. That means that it is harder to obtain the results that my clients desire. It is also more difficult to get them, especially the ones who face felony charges as a result of their gaining employment without government authorization, to understand why they are being treated as criminal defendants. Why must they be subject to the humiliation of criminal convictions and punished with possible years of imprisonment simply because they come across the border to get jobs to feed their families when they can't make a decent living in Mexico? Anyone, and I've heard and I've had prosecutors to tell me this, who is as economically hard-pressed as they are, would have done the same thing. From a humanitarian point of view, they make a lot of sense. And some of them, especially the women, before coming into this country never saw the, the inside of a jail. On the contrary, as much as it is humanly possible, they were paragons of virtue. Despite the humanitarian and moral claims that can be and are made for those who engage in the practice of entering in the, into this country without government permission, however, the lawyer in me responds with the sympathetic, I understand, but the state can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you use the identity of another real live person to obtain the employment that you had. And the Indiana legislature has made that act a criminal offense, which as a legislature 
it can rightly do. So let's try to get the best solution we can under the circumstances. And invariably, the best solution winds up being what the local prosecutor or state's attorney will accept. In the end, a great number of my clients, like so many others, are being escorted in handcuffs across the border to Mexico. But in spite of the fact that, that in spite of that fact, I try to do what I can to minimize their pain, especially the mothers who spend time in jail, separated from their families and their children. I try to minimize that. I try to make it so that if they're going to be deported, it will be done, it will be done instantaneously so that their families won't suffer. That has changed. It used to be uh, much easier to arrive at agreements the state would, in which the state would be satisfied and my clients could maintain their or retain their liberty. What hasn't changed, and I'm, this is remarkable, I think, is that despite the increased enforcement and increased border security, undocumented immigrants keep coming to this country. Some, even though they have been deported and warned not to return upon pain of prosecution and imprisonment by federal government, the federal government, in addition to any sentence that they may have received in state courts as a result of the state convictions. Recently, a lawyer friend of mine was in one of those uh, local courts here and told me a true story of one man whom the bailiff brought before the bench because he was picked up on, a, on an arrest warrant for not showing up to answer to a charge of probation violation. We had was a, uh, what happens is that the court will say, give him a year in jail, suspend all of that, but place him on probation, and you have to report, you have to do so many things, and he didn't do them. Uh, this man, thinking that he would help himself, uh, explained that he had a legitimate excuse. He told the judge that he didn't show up for his probation because he had been deported. He would have completed his probation as ordered if the U.S. government hadn't taken him back to Mexico, but now that he was back here in Goshen, he wanted a chance to fulfill the terms of his probation. Had I been his attorney, of course, I would have tried at the very least to persuade him not to raise that defense. <laughs> Yet, I know that's my lawyer side, okay? As a student of politics and government, as a political scientist, I know that for many of my clients, it is, in a real sense, unjust that they bear the stigma that the criminal law imposes upon them for working in this country without government permission because I know that they face economic circumstances over which they had very little to do in creating and they are powerless to shape and to change. Though some among us in this country argue that the, with the greatest sincerity that the vast majority of illegal uh, Mexican immigrants in the United States are here for reasons having little to do with the desire to be employed the truth appears to be otherwise. The fact is that the Mexican state, even after 186 years of independence and two profound social revolutions, one in the 19th century and one in the early 20th centuries, has been unable to establish an economy that provides 
a substantial portion of its citizens with a level of employment that meets with their rising expectations of an economically better life. Part of the rationale for the much aligned North American Free Trade Agreement from the perspective of, Mex of the Mexican governing elites was to find a ready way in which to eviscerate its growing unemployment problem. Nevertheless, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or the OECD, as late as October 4, 2007, while noting that, quote, open employment is low in Mexico, noted that there were many low product productivity jobs in the country. The wording was informal and low pro productivity jobs. We can take that to mean that these were low paying jobs. The report then called on the government to create higher paying jobs to improve human capital and labor markets uh, reforms and social policies that mitigated what it called widespread poverty. The OECD further noted that educational resources need to be better allocated in order to improve the educational system's performance, which in turn needed to be complemented by renewed efforts to upgrade workforce competencies through adult training. So it is that NAFTA has thus far failed as a solution to Mexico's unemployment problem. Thus, many of my clients, ordinary and simple people, find themselves compelled to vote with their feet as the late Ronald Reagan used to say, and go where jobs are plentiful and pay, and the pay allows them to have what the purveyors of material goods have persuaded them are the essentials of the good life. As I implore my clients to give serious thought to returning to Mexico because of my fear that once having had contact with the criminal system in this country, the next time will be much more difficult for them. They respond with a polite, no hay trabajo allá. Or they, that they can do better for themselves and their families by working in the United States, even with the added risk. As one man right now who's in jail, because he didn't take my advice, and he took the risk. And he is facing some serious jail time, having been charged with a Class A felony, which is, I understand, is, begins at 30 years for which 20 years may be added from which 10 years may be taken. So 20 to 50. Back home, one of them told me, I make 60 to $70 a week. That's not enough to live on. Here I can make five or six times as much in a week. The fact is that ordinary people like my clients are very much dependent upon Mexican economic and governing elites to build economic structures in the country that will make it easier to find jobs so they can work and provide for themselves and their families within their own society. Their presence in my office is ample testimony that Mexican leaders under the party of revolutionary institutions, or the PRI, and the National Action Party, or the PAN, have either been unable or unwilling to summon the will to meet that challenge. As a political scientist, I know that the challenge Mexican leaders face is no different from what would be, uh, leaders of would-be nation states have always faced. The Japanese faced it in the 19th century, and they met the challenge 
during their Meiji restoration. And much earlier in this country, a small oligarchy led by George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Alexander Hamilton, despite the substantial disagreements among them, effected agreements that helped place the new country on a sound economic footing. Why is it that Mexican elites cannot see that, in the words of the OECD, quote, promoting the creation of more and especially more productive jobs requires action on a broad front, including human capital formation and improvements in business environment, as well as reforms in the labor market and social policies? Or, if they do see it, why are they not attempting to effect the necessary changes that will meet the crisis confronting the Mexican state? An argument can be made that Mexican leaders are basically content with the existing state of affairs for at least three reasons. First, is that with approximately 10 to 12 million citizens of its citizens in the United States, most of whom would be unemployed if they were in Mexico, the country is spared the political liabilities that unemployment among such a large number of people would create. Secondly, illegal immigrant, the illegal immigrant community in the United States according to an article in the Houston Chronicle, remitted close to an estimated $25 billion in Mexico in 2006. That figure represents a 25% increase over remittances for 2005 and a nearly 80% surge in 2003. The Chronicle was relying on a report issued by the Inter-American Development Bank, which is based in Washington, D.C. The IDB added that those remittances surpassed tourism as Mexico's second largest resources of foreign, uh, second largest source of foreign revenue, helping to support more than four million Mexican families. Thirdly, if by effectively exporting Mexico's unemployment problem to, to the U.S., Mexican elites put off the difficult changes that they would perforce have to make where the, order, where the border with the United States not so close thereby foreclosing illegal immigration as an option for Mex many Mexicans. From the perspective of Mexican elites, the illegal immigration of Mexicans to the United States pays substantially in a variety of ways. On the other hand, Mexico's leaders surely realize that continuing the current situation indefinitely is not tenable because it is a right of every nation state, including the U.S., to ensure the integrity of its borders. Western European countries, such as the U.K., Spain, France, Greece, and Italy, among others, are doing it even as I speak as they contend with the problems posed by poor people from the South coming across the frontiers in, such of, in search of a better life without government permission. Even Mexico does it, as it has interdicted foreigners coming from Central America who are trying to escape poverty. Viewed in this light, Illegal immigration is essentially a problem of U.S.-Mexican relations, not problems for which the criminal law is most adapted. If that is the case, the question is, what is to be done about it at that level? Interestingly enough, Mexico's leaders have been completely, haven't, been, uh, haven't been completely sitting on their hands. Their ideal is to see a large guest worker program in the United States, since that would continue mitigating Mexico's unemployment problem. There are signs that if that were done, the Mexican government would expand its effort to stop the flow of undocumented workers in the United States. In addition, Mexico's new leaders have suggested modifications of the NAFTA that would allow Mexico to, uh, 
to maintain protections on commodities such as corn and beans instead of being phased out under that agreement. Those two commodities are the principal sources of income for hundreds of thousands of poor Mexican farmers. If that is not done, the drop in prices would inevitably accompany further trade liberalization, which in turn will force many of them to seek their livelihoods elsewhere. And thirdly, in the spring of this year, the new Mexican president, Felipe Calderon, proposed that Mexico and the United States expand the mandate of an institution called the North American Development Bank. The bank was responsible, is responsible for providing funding for water and sewage system projects uh, along the U.S.-Mexican border, and thus far has not been largely involved uh, in NAFTA, only indirectly involved in NAFTA, I should say. Mexico and the U.S. each provided half of the capitalization for the bank, and to date, uh, that seems to be working fairly well. Calderon, however, proposed that the bank become a NAFTA financial institution. Under the, proposed, uh, under the proposal, Canada would become a partner, the bank's capitalization would be increased, and its mandate would be expanded. It would continue funding local infrastructure projects, but would do so anywhere in the NAFTA region. As envisioned by Mexico's leaders, the North American Development Bank would sponsor job creation programs in those Mexican communities from where people feel they must migrate to the United States to find work, thereby reducing the propensity toward illegal immigration. Whether the meaningful bilateral negotiations between the United States and Mexico will take place or not is, of course, a question no one can answer. They are badly needed, however. As just suggested, Mexico has shown signs that it is interested in engaging in serious discussions about illegal immigration with the U.S. But the catch is that any significant movement towards solving this problem will require concessions from the United States, since it is highly unlikely that Mexico given the current advantage it has in doing nothing, will act on its own volition to curb out-immigration of its unemployed population. Indeed, doing so without some incentive from the United States would not make political sense. On the other hand, whoever succeeds George W. Bush will want to see Mexican governing elites take definitive and concrete steps committing its resources uh, before committing its resources uh, to helping Mexico, those concrete steps toward alleviating the problem that the Mexican poor experience. Furthermore, if the two countries did reach an agreement, it could be closely tied to a prospective immigration law in the United States that would address the future status of illegal immigrants living in this country. Whatever may unfold, this much is very clear. Until Mexico and the United States reach an agreement that provides people such as my clients with economic alternatives that are at least as attractive as illegal immigration, the issue will continue to exist and serve as an irritant not only between the United States and Mexico, but also among contending groups here in the United States as local law enforcement officials in league with officials from the Immigration and Customs Enforcement roam our neighborhoods seeking to catch and detain anyone they suspect of being illegal. This is the other side of my work as a political scientist, to think about problems like this beyond the narrow confines of case law, 
beyond the narrow confines of what my clients specifically may want. Well, let me say, over the last 22, now beginning 23 years, I've been privileged uh, to, I regard it as a privilege, let me uh, rather, to have done, be able to do both. Because each of my profession leaves out what the other takes in. As a teacher, I'm surrounded by books. I like books. I like to read. I like to be informed. I like to, to think about matters. On the other hand, I long to be able to be relevant, to be in the world of practice, to do things that can matter and make a difference in people's lives. I see my work as complementary. I count it a blessing that in spite of the, let, let us say, disappointments that I may have had, uh, on the whole, I am blessed to be able to have been once upon a time a migrant farm worker boy who was politically irrelevant and insignificant, whose parents were relatively unlettered and who worked on the margins and operated on the margins of society, to be able now to stand before you, having gone through some of our country's most prestigious universities and working with some very bright people to do some very ordinary things. Even so, as I await upon resolution of the immigration issue, I shall continue seeing my clients and trying to help them solve the legal problems that they encounter by being here without government authorization the best I can, recognizing that as I do so, that the resolution of this issue, like so many important matters that confront us, will be the responsibility primarily of the politicians and only secondarily the lawyers for the simple reason that politics is what makes law possible. Thank you so much. Have a good day.